Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 118 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the frenetic Efreet Gottlieb. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this is because I'm going to be flipping coins at this PT. Is that what the deal is? Uh, that was not my intention, actually, when I chose frenetic Efreet as my card of the week. But I, I guess that seems like it's starting to be kind of true. I just wanted to call out that you and I are both kind of traveling right now. We're on the road. I'm doing this cast from a Las Vegas hotel room. You are in Cleveland now, correct? Are you in Cleveland presently? Oh, no, no, no. No, you're still in Seattle? I'm at home. I just got back, actually. And I I mean, I guess that that is kind of, you know, traveling for me where it's like, oh, I'm home for a couple of weeks. This is cool. I mean, I guess this time it's like a week and then I go to Cleveland and probably home for a little bit to mail out some Patreon rewards and then maybe take a vacation and then go to the Hunter Burton Memorial. So Yeah, I mean, we have a bunch of trips coming up, as you and I often do now, but we have Hunter Burton Memorial Open coming up, which we're both super excited about. Going to be there doing some work for them. Looks like in a streaming capacity, which we're pretty excited about. We also have SCG Cincinnati a few weeks after that. But the big news is, of course, this upcoming PT. Well, not PT, MC, MC Cleveland. That's the worst rapper of all time, by the way. If I ever have to go to like an MC Cleveland concert, I'm going to be really disappointed. Yeah, same. Uh, One one thing that I I do want to talk about real quick, uh, even though we didn't really plan for this, is just, you know, the Hunter Burton Memorial in general. And yeah, Texas Magic took a big hit recently with the passing of Jeff Zandi. I don't know how many people know him, but I mean, I've been playing Magic uh, a very long time and he was always a figurehead like a he was a judge, community leader. He ran like the Texas Guild Mages and was just like this insane, huge part of Texas Magic where just like everyone knew him. He knew everyone. He made it a point to make sure everyone was having fun, had what they needed and all that. Like he was he was just like the nicest guy, larger than life. And I I honestly can't say enough nice things about him. And the fact that he passed away, especially so close to the tournament, which he had a big hand in organizing, like both him and his wife, it's not going to be the same, man. Yeah, I unfortunately didn't get to meet Jeff ever, but just hearing the outpouring of support over the past week or so, obviously an incredibly special person. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for the entire community's loss. Obviously, just a huge boon to the game of Magic the Gathering and his community. It sounds like the Hunter Burton Memorial just isn't going to be the same without him. Regardless, we will do our best to uh, you know, carry on in the spirit. I'm sure that Jeff would have wanted us to enjoy the tournament and remember him fondly as we do. No, absolutely. I, I think that is exactly what he would have wanted. And I was talking to uh, his, his son a little bit, just sharing my condolences and everything because I've known his dad for almost two decades, you know. And pro- probably longer than Lawson's been alive, actually. 
but yeah, he, I asked him if he was going to be there and he was just like, look, you know, the, the tournament is in honor of Hunter Burton, who is like one of his best friends growing up and his mentor and his dad helped start it. And he's just like, I'm not going to miss a single one of these. Great. I look forward to seeing him there. That's going to be great. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to introduce you and, uh, I'm, I'm sure that everyone will be talking about Jeff. Absolutely. And deservedly so. And I also encourage anyone who's listening to our cast, the Hunter Burton Memorial. Uh, it's such a great thing to be a part of. This is going to be my first year. I'm so excited to participate. Anyone listening wants to come down. We'll be there. We'll be there all weekend. You'll see us around. It's going to be a lot of fun and a really important event for the community to kind of heal a little bit after losing one of its beloved figures. Yep, for sure. So I, I, I'm definitely looking forward to it, but it is going to be very weird without Jeff there. But Moving on, I guess, the Mythic Championship. Give me a deck list. What do you got for me? <laughs> I didn't know that this was going to be my task when we uh, sat down to record this cast today. I take it that means testing thus far has not revealed any gems, anything that puts you particularly far ahead of the rest of the field as far as you're concerned? No, testing testing has been fine. I mean, I, I think I've been on top of things. Like the last two weeks, we called Mono Blue, won the Open. Mm-hmm. I called yeah. Rakdos, which was like this weirdo fringe choice, right? And then it won the GP. So I think I know what's going on. I think that uh, in a nutshell, Saltai is very good. You need to slant your deck to be able to beat Mirrors, Nexus, and Mono Blue. White aggro decks are just kind of getting beat up by everything that is not Nexus or Mono Blue. So I don't necessarily like its spot. And I think Rakdos is still good. Jody said he went 8-0 against Saltai over the course of the weekend, which is pretty damn impressive, honestly. It has a fairly bad Nexus matchup, and if I'm willing to scoop that, which I think I am, then I, I guess I should be playing some red mid-range deck. I don't know. I have Twitch Rivals. I mean, I guess this cast will probably go up Thursday, and I'm streaming Twitch Rivals on Wednesday. I registered some big red nonsense, so we'll see how that goes. But that's that's kind of what I'm looking at right now, but I think playing Sultai is probably a good idea, too. It's a really strange position that you and I find ourselves in right now because I feel the same as you do. I I do feel like I have very much had my finger on the pulse of this format as it's been chugging along. And nothing has particularly surprised me as as it's come to fruition. I guess like if you had asked me earlier in the format, I would have expected the Wilderness Reclamation decks to take a much bigger share than they initially did. But in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense why they've struggled to find a foothold. But I the the problem is that despite feeling like I have this knowledge, this intuition about what may happen next, I don't feel like I'm unique in that. This feels to me like the single most explored pre-Pro Tour format of all time. Just the focus via arena streaming and the sheer amount of practice that people are getting via arena. I mean, you keep hearing these stories from people like, I know Alexander Haynes said something to the effect that he feels like he's played more magic since the dawn of Ravnica Allegiance than like, you know, X months combined prior to that. He's not alone. There's a bunch of people who have severely ramped up their commitment to magic with the advent of arena and just how much viewership there is with all these MPL streams. I mean, the information is there. You're seeing these decks evolve in real time. And I wrote an article on SCG today that kind of painted my theory of the format and how there's these five pillars. And I define the pillars as Sultai, Mono Blue, White Aggro, Esper and Wilderness Reclamation decks. And certainly there's some of those which I have more faith in than others. But those five decks, 
They're all super, super refined. They're super real. And if anyone swooped in and won this pro tour, it would not surprise me in the least. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same spot as you for the last couple of weeks. It was about making metagame predictions, and now it seems like everything is sort of solidified and it's it's just evened out. You know, I think Esper Control has mostly just gotten beat up by everything at this point. So right. you can kind of cross that off the list. And the Rakdos stuff is sort of a new entry to the format. But other than that, like you have Saltai, which is pretty decent against everything uh but definitely loses to mono blue and then you have nexus which is pretty good against the mid-range and control decks but loses to mono blue and then there are you know decks like azorius and rakdos that just beat the hell out of mono blue but also everyone gets to react to mono blue now you're seeing like more crawl harpooners more spot removal main deck in the saltai decks and stuff like that so people are kind of gunning for that deck now because they know it's a threat so what do So I think that this is going to be a tournament that ultimately is won on the back, not of deck selection, but on technology selection. And that's a weird position to find ourselves in because I think that's how late stage standard tournaments are often won. Like this is kind of the spot where Brad Nelson is great at standard, right? Like he's, he knows exactly what small edges to gain from what looks like almost a stock list, or sometimes he can grab something off the wall. But I I think more of him is like refining what's been established as the best deck and just having these picture perfect 75s for what he expects the metagame to be. And this is the stage we're at now going into the pro tour as opposed to late stage standard, which is a really big switch. And it just begs the question, like what pieces of technology are out there that are underexplored. And I wrote about a bunch of them in my article today. And I kind of lumped Rekindling Phoenix into that set of new technology. And maybe that's a little unfair given like Rakdos just won the GP. Obviously, it's pretty found technology. But there's also other stuff you can do with Rekindling Phoenix. You can do big red decks. You could look at Grixis type builds and all kinds of other options that are really just leveraging that one particular card. But you also mentioned a card like Curl Harpooner, which I think as that gains more and more metagame share, those decks find themselves with a whole new set of positioning, like something like Nexus of Fate or Nexus of Gates picking up a Curl Harpooner could really make a difference in a bunch of matchups or even the existing Simic Nexus decks could grab Curl Harpooner. And all of a sudden this vulnerability to mono blue might not be as pronounced. And when that ripple happens, then they're leveraging these other favorable matchups and certain decks are getting pushed down the brackets. And then the end of the tournament comes and, you know, Nexus is able to carry the day just off the base of a few sideboard slots. Are there any cards that you have your eye on right now that you think are maybe a little underappreciated and can have that same kind of spoiler role going into the Mythic Championship? I agree with the cards that you brought up so far. The other one that I think is very powerful that not a lot of people are playing with is the Immortal Sun. And interesting. I think that it is quite good against Sultai and has been basically forever. And if Esper is still a thing, it is basically lights out against them because they're playing things like Mortify and Frasca's Contempt and not Ixalan's Binding, which, you know, granted, I think is correct, but it's just something that is very, very difficult for them to beat. And then if the Nexus decks are of a Bant variety, which I don't really see that being the case, but uh, could be. You have you have Immortal Sun to shut off Teferi, and then you just need something for Search for Iskanta, you know, like either some Disenchants or uh, Sorcerer Spyglass, or even, I mean, just having Cinder Vines on the battlefield can be enough against them, even if they have an active search. But 
What do you make of a couple Japanese players playing Simic Nexus at the last GP? Like Yuki Ichikawa and Kenta Hirane. Kenta made the top eight. And I, I can't say enough good things about Kenta. Kenta has always impressed the hell out of me whenever I've seen him play. But like their deck was... It, it, it looked like their Pro Tour deck, basically. Like, it was very refined and looked good, and they had good sideboard plans. Like, they were siding in mana creatures. They were very prepared for mono blue. They had a bunch of crushing canopies and stuff. Like, do you think that they're actually just going to run that back at the PT? So, people are starting to buzz about this deck right now, and it's kind of started generating over the last two weeks or so where people think that the blue-green builds of Simic might, or blue-green builds of Nexus might just be exactly what this deck was supposed to look like the entire time. And to some extent, I believe that. But at some point, you have to ask yourself the question, why did they roll out this deck for this GP, especially given how little GPs matter at this point? They just don't matter. This is basically like an exhibition tournament. You're not generating any points. And granted, there's a small window left where pro points matter to a certain very select group of people. Possibly, Harane fell under that group of people. I don't know. Maybe he was in need of a good GP finish to lock up some Pro Tour status. Totally possible. And that was actually a bigger tournament for him than it may have seemed. But it's often that the GP leading into you know, a, a Pro Tour, it's usually limited. So this doesn't come up. But if there is a constructed event, a lot of people are playing things very close to the best. So you have to wonder about leaking that technology a little bit early. I think you're spot on, though, that there were clear plans. And the plan I liked the most was actual answers for the mono blue deck. Now, I may not agree with the particular answer that was used. It was Adzakan Archer, I believe, is the card, the 1-4 reach creature that does a damage to a flying creature when it enters the battlefield, I believe is the yeah. text on that card. Weird choice where Harpooner exists as far as I'm concerned. Well, that one's been popping up a little bit. I saw, I think, one of the modal lists that had four copies in the sideboard. And it doesn't necessarily deal with a, a creature that has Curious Obsession. Like, you get to block it, but eventually they're just going to find uh, Merfolk Trickster or whatever to get that thing out of the way and then probably just get you from there. But, like, if you get to snipe something and then you have this thing that blocks, it probably just gives you a lot of time to cast Chemistry's Insights and set up and everything. I buy that, but I think Harpooner can do a lot of the same work. Like, it's picking off the same one toughness creatures in a lot of spots. Like, you can still kill uh, Siren Storm Tamer, and your Harpooner remains on the battlefield. I also like Harpooner because those decks, the Nexus decks that are ultra light on removal, and no Nexus deck has been lighter on removal than something like this blue-green deck, they have a huge problem with Thief of Sanity in post-board games. And Harpooner is so good against Thief of Sanity because it's both like a reactive and proactive answer. Like you can play it on the battlefield and start doing damage if that's something you need to do. And, you know, sometimes in post-board games, you are switching your game plan. You actually want to just kill your opponent and win the game in that fashion. And, and it's still able to block and remove a Thief of Sanity at that point. But if you draw one after a Thief of Sanity has already done some damage, you still get to pick it off. And I, I really think that's a unique card that can do a lot for decks that have struggled with very specific problems, one of them being Thief of Sanity. So I, I was surprised to see that inclusion. But to get back to your larger question, I do think this deck is the real deal. I think a lot of people are working on it now. A lot of people identify it as something special. And you mentioned the Immortal Sun as a way to shut off you know, Planeswalkers. And I think you're right. I think that card has the opportunity to shine. But in my article, I focused on Sorcerer's Spyglass because it was able to both achieve the goal of shutting down Planeswalkers and it can get to the search for Ascontas, which are so key to this build of the deck. I've seen some lists that, in fact, play four 
uh, search for Escanta. They're just like, I need this card always or my deck does not function. And having a Sorceress Spyglass on Escanta the Sunken Ruin can do a lot to buy a lot of time and force them to play a much more fair game of Magic. Right, which they're not very good at doing. I mean, no. they really need an engine set up because they have so many awkward cards like Root Snare, Wilderness Reclamation, which is not very good in multiples. Like they they need to leverage Escanta for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And so so that's a long-winded way of saying I am a buyer in this deck, but it seems like these lists can still improve. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So you are talking about like, oh, maybe I'll just go in and scoop the Nexus matchup. I That makes me nervous. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that Nexus is going to be the most popular deck at the Pro Tour. I'm just saying there's enough buzz and enough room for this deck to improve that I could see this being a very big player, especially as the day goes on at the Pro Tour. And I'm going to call it the Pro Tour until my head busts. I, I don't think I'll Same. ever be able to wrap around Mythic Championship. It's not that I want to just throw away the branding. It's just so hard to train like 20 years of memory and just erase it at this point. It's not going to happen quickly. No, I know. I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I I think it's worth noting that I'm not scooping the matchup, right? Like I'm not zero percent. Right, right. I am I am a dog, but it is winnable depending on what version I play. Like if I'm red green, like you know, Shota Takao's deck from the top eight of the GP, which was the kind of mono red ish aggro deck that used unclaimed territory to play the red green beefier creatures alongside Goblin Chain Whirler, and then you know sideboard a bunch of Cinder Vines and stuff like. That deck is okay against Nexus, mm-hmm. and if I'm playing Rakdos and I have, like, Duress and another discard spell, I like Kitesail Freebooter. Drillbit has not really impressed me, and uh, Kitesail does cool things when you're also bringing in, like, Theater of Horrors in those matchups and stuff, so I like yeah. Freebooter a lot. Yeah, I could buy that. But yeah, it's it's not good. I mean, I haven't actually when I was playing Rakdos, I didn't have Spyglass, but I think I think I should definitely have two copies of Spyglass, and I think that would help too. I think so too. I think there's enough equity in that card in multiple matchups where you'd be pretty happy to have a few copies going into this mythic championship. I got it that time. Nailed it. You mentioned you mentioned showed at the cows deck. I think that's a really interesting one from a pure technology standpoint. Like I cannot tell you if this deck is excellent or like a worse version of existing decks. I honestly don't know. And just looking at it and I'm not going to lie and pretend like I've had a chance to play it yet. But as, as far as the cards that are included in it and what Takao is able to accomplish via a very interesting mana base, I think he really deserves some credit for having a unique, unique take here, basically finding a way to play Goblin Chain Whirler and Rekindling Phoenix, two cards which I do believe to be extremely well positioned, but not having to give up and just like throw his card quality into the dumpster, still getting access to Cinder Vines by using a very strange set of names with unclaimed territory to preserve his mana base. I really like the approach and it kind of inspires me to say, well, you know, what other imperfect unclaimed territory mana bases are there? Because that's what I would consider this, an imperfect unclaimed territory. It's not like you're playing 32 humans, right? And your unclaimed territories are just naming the same thing every time. You have to ask some real questions with your unclaimed territories. It's mostly going to be Warrior, I think, right? You agree that's the default name? Yeah, so I, I've played with this deck some, uh, like Sunday night after the deck list went up because okay. this deck just like immediately stood out to me. It was kind of yeah, what I wanted wild. to be doing anyway. Yeah, And... Warrior is kind of the default, but you have Zertog Goblin that is a Berserker. So sometimes you name Goblin, but like that right. that works both ways for Chain Whirler. So it doesn't really matter. And if you have like Red Green Dual Land Unclaimed Territory, you play Zertog Goblin 
And basically any land you draw past that will cast Gruul Spellbreaker or uh, cast Goblin Chain Whirler as long as it's not the basic forest, you know? So right. it, it is not perfect, but there's like two different sets of overlap that are actually pretty good. And then, you know, occasionally you'll name Phoenix because your mana is super weird and you need to play a Rekindling Phoenix for RR and then also like Colossus on that turn or something. So, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like kind of beautiful in a lot of ways, the way this mana base is set up. And it made me question what other mana bases did we miss? Like what other things were we capable of that just kind of flew under the radar because we were a little stubborn with the way we would use unclaimed territory. And I don't know the answer to that. And maybe that's one of the angles someone can use to get an edge at this PT. But I think you see real concessions to the problem matchups for this archetype, like this aggressive archetype, you see the cinder vine sitting in the sideboard. You see all these collision colossuses all over the place. And there's, there's just good outs to a lot of problematic cards in this deck, not to mention just the insanely well-positioned chain whirler Phoenix combo. Right. And rule spellbreaker is a completely reasonable threat. Zertog goblin is fine. Growth chamber guardian is just excellent. And then you have dire fleet daredevil, which People put it in like the really controlling versions, but they don't really put it in like the aggressive slanted mid-range versions. And I think mm-hmm. it's just a really smart inclusion here because you get to do things like, you know, take their cast down, Braska's Contempt, find finality to grind a little bit. And even just keeping someone off of transforming search for Iskanta for a turn is huge. Yeah, yeah, a lot this card can do for sure. And uh, I, I like leaning hard into it, even in pre-board games. It's usually more of a post-board card in a lot of spots, although the Rakdos decks are certainly starting to throw that trend out the window. I also note the two Cruel Harpooners in the sideboard. As I mentioned, I think that card's insanely well-positioned. And I am not 100% sure that you shouldn't just be playing that over like the Zerta Goblins. I, I think it's a little bit cleaner name in a lot of spots for the Warriors and you're just getting even more equity in a lot of really present matchups. So I would look into what I could do with more Curl Harpooners just around the 75. I think the card is so excellent right now that it really bears a lot more inclusion. Like this was the first step where people were like, okay, it's time for a Curl Harpooner. And I, I hope the result of this tournament was just people being like, this card was always insane. It's time to amp this up a little bit. Yeah, it's true that it is cleaner, but I I think losing that point of toughness is a pretty big deal when you're talking about trying to attack through Golgari's like Merfolk Branchwalkers and stuff like that. That is kind of where Crawl Harpooner has failed me before. So it's not like Zertog Goblin is incredible or anything. It's certainly not. And I could see making that switch that would save you some sideboard slots, which could be pretty nice. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I think there's still room for these decks to evolve. And that's what's cool is that I would consider these very squarely tier two archetypes and they still have wiggle room to boost their way for at least one week up into tier one like it may be that these archetypes are easier to adapt to than the foundational pillars and i think that's mostly true but for this pro tour they could certainly have a good day yeah one of the things i tried doing with this deck was although siege gang commander is very strong against sultai and the mono white decks i wanted to try this deck with a couple copies of light up the stage and that that was fine. I the, the Saltai matchup gets much worse when you don't have access to Siege Gang. So then I was boarding a bunch of treasure maps and two copies of the Immortal Sun, and that was my sideboard plan against them, and it was actually working pretty well. So this is this is definitely on my radar for potential deck that I could play. Why do you think it is that light up the stage? Like we all acknowledge it's an incredibly powerful card, and we're seeing it sometimes be absolutely mind blowing, but as I try it more and more, it, there's just a bunch of times where it just doesn't 
quite work. Is it just that converted mana costs in standard are too high to really leverage it to the extent you want to? Or is it something else going on? Does the card advantage not matter given the type of games that are being played? I mean, that's that's certainly a big part of it where you get like this nice little draw to a lot of the time. But realistically, it just matters that you're curving out and playing like good threats on every step Mm -hmm. of the way. So I kind of looked at it as a little bit of like filtering in velocity for a deck that very much did want to curve out. So it, it was helping me hit my land drops and making sure that I had like threats to play and stuff. And like, maybe that's just not the, the best way to go about it. But I just have a really big issue with siege gang commander in a format with mono blue. Yeah, I can buy that. Uh, the five mana creature that just kind of poops around is not going to get the job done in a lot of spots. What was your experience with growth, growth chamber guardian? How was that card? It's great. Uh, People can't really block it effectively. I think there are probably a lot of situations where they should just block with their branch walker, but they're just like, I don't want them to spend three mana and make it into a four, four or whatever. But then they just end up taking a bunch of extra chip damage. That's not great for them. So I think that people can be blocking a little bit more liberally against it, but having this thing that allows you to use your mana every turn and translates into more threats and stuff like that sort of thing is really helpful against Sultai, even though it might not seem like it. No, I I think the top of the deck looks a lot better for this deck. There's a lot more powerful stuff going on. I think the Riot cards play into that as well, like being able to resize your creatures or just have surprise damage out of nowhere is a pretty important wrinkle that this deck got to add. So it's cool to see out of what should be like a big dumb gruel deck that there's still powerful top decks available. Oh yeah, I mean this is more along the lines of like a green red monsters deck than a mono red deck right right i think that's a good analogy just not playing crappy cards like land or elves and pill collector and just basically skipping the one drop entirely yeah the only decks that are leveraging one drop successfully at this point it's mono blue and i if you want to make the case for mono white you can do that i think mono white had a tough showing although i will say I did appreciate the shift to the monocolored decks as opposed to the Azorius deck, which is something that we've talked about a bit. There was only one copy of white aggressive decks in the top eight, but it was in fact a mono white version. And I would expect that to continue at the Pro Tour as well. Where do you see that deck kind of positioning for this weekend? Let me check out the Mox Insight numbers again, because I remember mono white not performing that much worse than... Azorius against the Nexus decks, which is like the main reason to be Azorius, right? Yeah, I think that's what people would sell you on. And me often playing the Nexus side of things, that's not what I'm afraid of. I don't care about your negate. I am worried about you killing me before I can do anything relevant. And Mono White does that much better than the Azorius takes. And if you are taking off a turn from your curve to hold up negate, that can be beneficial for me. And I can find maneuverability around that. Whereas I can't maneuver around you just killing me on turn four. Oh, they don't even have Mono White on the list. I forget what I was looking at, but it was like Mono White did not seem that much worse against the Nexus decks, if at all, than Azorius. So it's it's just about time. People need to make that swap. They need to stop trying to splash cards in their aggro deck and you know just play 20 planes or 18 planes, whatever it takes. I agree with you, and I think that will be the case going into the Mythic Championship. But yes, yeah, it looks like Sultai went 8-1 and one against the white aggro decks, which is a bad place to be because Sultai is going to be the most popular deck for sure. That seems like a good read to me. Yeah, look, 
<laughs> Wild Growth Walker is a heck of a card. And the battlefield presence you generate so quickly with that trio of cards is just, it, it's tough for white decks to get through. It's tough for aggressive decks to get through. That's why we don't see red decks anymore. You see decks with a lot of flyers. And one of the wrinkles that white has is it can be a deck that is focused much more on flyers. The Rust Wing, Wing Falcon, you know, Healer's Hawk based versions. I don't know. Maybe someone will come with just a host of flyers and find a way over the Golgari decks that way. The problem is I do think on the whole, your clock slows down when you take that approach. And then you start introducing vulnerability against something like the Nexus deck possibly. So we'll see if that's a change that the white players can afford to make going into this week. Yeah, I like the the dub dub 2-2. I think that card is perfectly reasonable, the 2-2 flyer. Yeah, I, look, you can't beat Wild Growth Walker on the ground. The problem is, like, you have to ask the question, can I just beat it racing? If it's gaining 12 life over the course of, you know, a five-turn game, can I still beat that? And I think in a lot of cases, the white decks can do that. They generate so much board presence and can get so big via their Loxodons and the rest of their Anthems that they can overcome that kind of life gain. They just can't take the first you know, two or three turns off of the game from attacking. It's not going to work out for them. The Wild Earth Walkers brickwall them too effectively. Yeah, I agree with that. What the white aggro decks are not something that I'm willing to touch because the Sultai matchup's bad. The Nexus matchup, like you're you're kind of helpless. Like I, I think that your your clock is definitely fast enough, but you know, if they just have the right combination of stuff and like root snare you into oblivion, like you're just not gonna win. And there's not a whole lot you can really do about that. I do think demystify it out of the sideboard helps a lot right. where it, it stops them from going ham super quickly. And I oh, would yeah. probably look at playing like a third copy just because of Searcher's Canta too. But I'd be more willing to play mono blue, I think, because the Sultai matchup is good on paper. And I do think that people are, are going to adapt to it. They've already been adapting to it. And mono blue is now simply like a deck rather than the deck to be playing. So I want to push you a little further on the mono blue point. You say you'd consider it going into this weekend. I think you're right that people targeted it. We talked about Harpooner and other such cards. Do you think people take a step back from that going into this pro tour? Is is there going to be less focus on mono blue? Do they think they've answered the scourge at this point? Or is it like, are the decks to beat Golgari 1, mono blue 1A? Yes. Yeah, I I think mono blue will be the second most popular deck. I think it is easy to choose to play mono blue when the field is Sultai because maybe your matchup goes from 70% to 60% after they play like an extra cast down and sideboard some harpooners and stuff. But realistically, it's not getting that much worse and your plan is still just very good against them. Maybe it means that you want to play the fourth copy of Dive Down uh, just to be a little bit more more able to interact with their stuff in their early game and just like ensure that you are able to cement like an early advantage. And then who's who's going to play white aggro decks in this pro tour? Like who who is looking at that and just saying like, oh, this is a good choice. Andrew Ellenbogen, Craig Wesco, definitely those two. I'm not, I'm not sure about anyone else. It's a hard sell right now. I think like you have to really, really believe that mono blue is going to be there in almost preposterous numbers, I think. And Mono Blue doesn't speak to me as that type of deck. Like, I I will be surprised if a lot of first-time PT players choose to go in that direction because I think it does require you to believe you have a skill edge and to trust in yourself. And 
while my point when I talk to first time pro tour players is always that they should be trusting in themselves. Like they absolutely belong. They can play with the best players on the planet. That's why they're at the pro tour. I find that people aren't always receptive to that advice. They don't really want to take my word for it, that they do belong and they kind of scale back their difficulty a little bit. And I think if you're trying to scale back your difficulty, you're definitely going to look away from mono blue because me now having played the deck for weeks and weeks and and really truly loving it it's not like those games that i look back at and go huh i should have won that have gone away there's fewer of them but now i'm finding those games in even weirder spots like oh if i had done this extra one point of damage on turn four with my storm tamer siren as opposed to holding it back then i would have won the game as opposed to like just big dumb dumb mistakes that i was making previously so I think you really have to trust in yourself to pick up mono blue and I wouldn't expect it to be really, really hard represented. Like I think it'll be significantly down from where Sultai lies. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I don't know. I, I I do feel like those, those games that you're talking about that come down to winning by inches probably happen a lot more once people have a bunch of interaction for you also. Mm Mm-hmm. So then you just have to get used to playing those those scrappy games. And maybe that means building your main deck or building your sideboard a little bit differently. Like I talked about the fourth dive down uh, or the third and fourth copies, depending on whose list you're going off of. But right. yeah, maybe maybe the sideboard plan of just like all creature counter spells, which is kind of what I was doing does not work in the face of a bunch of spot removal and then it's like okay well maybe you want surge mares instead and maybe your plan is now just like aggressively pump surge mares as much as you possibly can you know and yeah i think that people might not realize those things until after the pro tour so you you could be right where people just like pick up mono blue they're playing games with like a stock list against kind of the new salti decks and then they're just like oh yeah this isn't working out very well i have to look somewhere else yeah, because the shifts that mono blue can make, they're, they're not going to be dramatic. Like we've explored all the mono blue cards. You know what's out there. It's very clear the pool of available cards for this deck. We talked about them all in our deep dive episode a couple of weeks ago. What can change is the ratios of those cards. And it's going to have to be some really like fine, careful adjustments that players make to get an edge going into this pro tour. And that's going to be challenging. Like you mentioned liking some cards. I like additional cap copies of essence capture right now i think you need to be realistic about rekindling phoenix and i think against those rakdos decks i'm going to want to make sure i have access to at least three if not four copies of essence capture i just don't think you're going to win those games otherwise and that's a cost you don't have to pay a cost in the sideboard and maybe that means you get a little weaker in another spot and that deck shifts against you and it's this never-ending like scale that's balancing up and down for the mono blue deck and it's going to be really hard to get it balanced for this pro tour i think it's possible it again it wouldn't surprise me if mono blue wins the pro tour it's just going to take really careful really inspired deck building dude you know what i want right now is is matt costa's mono blue deck list i bet he would have a good one that it, like no frills no nonsense just like i have the best cards try and beat me right that's what i need matt give but jerry I- a call if you're listening to this episode for god's sake He's he's too busy playing Eternal right now. Oh, okay. And Doesn't and living his... living his living his big boy life. Is he not qualified for this pro tour? He's qualified for one upcoming, I know. It, it may be this one, it may be the next one, I'm not sure. Oh man, if he's qualified, what the hell, man? Why did he not give me a call? Shoot him a message, figure it out. Oh man, that's now now I'm worried. <laughs> I could have just had the answer all this time and I wouldn't have had right. to be stressing out. And you wasted all this time. How foolish. 
Instead, I'm sitting over here writing down an updated Grohl mid-range deck list. So I'm in trouble, clearly. I, I don't know that you are in trouble. That's the thing. It's like more than any time when there's this state of flux, what's going to be rewarded? Careful sideboard planning and just tight gameplay. That's it's we're gonna get back to basic magic and like being the best player. And I know you'll bristle when I say this, but you're going to be one of the best players in the room and you will have the opportunity to leverage that, I'm sure. I'm definitely in like the top 300. <laughs> okay, that's a good place to be. Really fine positioning there. I can I can say that with 100% confidence. So I guess I have to ask you a question, and it's a question you've asked of me many times. Why and not play Saltai? <laughs> I have to ask, right? Like if we believe it's just a deck that has fine matchups across the board and all this customizability, and we're sitting here all this time and we haven't even broached the possibility of you playing this deck, why? Why not? So Corey Burkhardt got second at the Grand Prix last weekend. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. He talked about like playing mirror matches and barely finishing game two in turns and stuff like that. And that hasn't really been my experience playing the deck on arena, but I don't know. Like Sultai is fine. It's fine. I don't know that there are going to be too many people that are like, Oh, I showed up with my Sultai hate deck, you know, but I do yeah. think that you are being pulled in a lot of different directions as far as do you beat Nexus? Do you beat mono blue? Do you beat the mirror match? I think that's really tough. But isn't that kind of what you do? Like, isn't that where your skill set lies is figuring out how far to push in one direction and knowing how far to be pulled and ending up with this perfect 75 when you have all the options available to you? Uh, That's what they tell me. (laughs) Okay. I I tend to believe that. I mean, you've considered playing the deck, right? It has to have crossed your mind at this point. Oh, yeah. I've been like looking at deck lists and playing at some on arena and everything and generally doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. I think I have a pretty fundamental or pretty good fundamental understanding of what makes the deck good and everything. And I like a lot of the stuff about Corey's deck list where he has 25 land, two memorial to folly. Love that. Uh, th- yeah. Three spot removal spells. He actually liked the carnage tyrant, which I haven't, but I think I need to kind of change my stance on that a little bit because I think tyrant is just very, very good in the mirror matches. Right. And then, the sideboard stuff, I don't know. I guess Corey didn't play any Plague Crafters, which I was pretty high on because it was really good against Esper, but Esper is kind of terrible. So I think Plague Crafter can get out. Do you play the two Cry of the Carnariums just to be safe against White Aggro? It's also a fine card against Mono Blue. Like Corey played one. I'm kind of fine with that, but I might play the second one just to insulate me. And then, yeah, four copies of Duress, some amount of counter spells, some amount of card advantage for mirror matches. I don't know. I mean... It seems fairly easy to build, you know? Yeah, I think you harped on a lot of the good points that Corey found in his deck list going into this weekend. I guess there's always part of me that's like, why not just try and weasel out that 7-3 in Constructed with this completely fine deck list and then hope you spike draft. And that's what a lot of great Pro Tour finishes are built on, like a completely fine standard deck, one that you have faith will allow you some room to outplay. And, you know, we know that this deck keeps you in games. You get to play most of your games on the backs of Branch Walker and Jade Light Ranger. You find your mana, especially when you go up to 25 lands. So why not just do that and hope for your sick so and Ravnica Allegiance Limited, which, by the way, have you played a lot of Ravnica Allegiance Limited? Do you feel comfortable in that format? I feel comfortable. I've played a lot, but certainly not as much as my contemporaries. Mm. 
what's your testing look like for that? Real quick, we don't have to go deep into limited, but has it been mostly arena or have you been back on Magic Online for limited? Uh, so I have a stockpile of tickets on Magic Online, so I've been trying to kind of burn through those drafting. My process is draft some, play some games, figure out what cards are good, how the cards interact, what tricks are in the format, and then I can basically just draft and drop. So I don't know, I've probably done like 50 actual drafts, maybe 10 on Magic Online, 10 or 15, and the rest on Arena. Okay. How have the queue times been on Magic Online? Is it a, a dying breed? Yeah, it just isn't going to work, right? Like this isn't sustainable, unfortunately. Like there's there's got to be somewhere for real drafts. Like you have to be able to not just draft against the computer all the time, but it doesn't seem like Magic Online is going to hold up. Yeah, this is off topic, but a while ago, they made a push on Magic Online to consolidate a lot of the queues because they found that they were offering too many things which led to just you know three or four players sitting in all the queues at all the time right Right. but then once you remove a lot of the options then you know you just funnel people into the places that they're supposed to go like there shouldn't be three different draft leagues at this point there just shouldn't be no there can't be and hopefully that's just something that they didn't know going into this release period you know obviously arena is still a new thing but going forward, no, there there has to be one draft queue if there's going to be any more in-person drafting. Let's be honest, it's just going to show up on Arena at some point. We know they're working on it, hopefully sooner rather than later. And if we're being fair, I would say that things have shown up on Arena sooner than I have expected for the most part. Like these things that we keep hearing about, they're there kind of before I expect them. We're not even out of beta yet, and a lot of things have been added that were promised. So I am hoping that very soon we will just get to draft on Arena and not have to worry about this anymore. For the time being, though, I would like to see some cleanup done on Magic Online so we can make drafting against humans a real thing again, because it's very challenging right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily need my draft practice to exactly mimic real life, because like I said, all I want to do is just get the cards in my hand and on the battlefield, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. And then I'll be able to figure out the draft decisions as they come during the actual tournament after I've played with the cards and like been able to think about them and rank them and whatnot. So I, I think it is fine as a testing tool. I, if you're looking for something that completely mimic mimics real life, I mean, you're kind of SOL at the moment because even magic online, you're not playing within the same pod. So it's right. Kind of, right. kind of weird. You, you, there are times where your table is very weak and then you play against someone who just has like a busted draft deck or whatever. And I think those things are like pretty few and far between, but it is, it is still different than playing within your pod. Yeah, I'm kind of a believer in that the idiosyncrasies of like same table draft aren't super important to a conducive practice experience. I am less sure about the effect of robo drafting. I think like having really messed up pick orders can occasionally be problematic, as we saw with Gates prior to the fix. Like that was just wrong and not a realistic reflection of draft experiences. But now we're getting closer, and certainly there's very small things that matter. As far as thinking about, you know, what your neighbors are doing and what you're passing to people. But once you kind of have formed that foundation, like if you've been drafting for however many years, like I have, those things are embedded in you and they carry over from format to format. You'll never not consider them. And there might be small edges you miss, but on the whole, I think the practice experience is good enough. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know, the the Gates thing to me seems to kind of mimic real life because Gates was one of the best decks going into GRN and not everyone knew about it. Like people weren't willing to force it or whatever. And I was, 
So you think it's just like, a, it was like a reconfiguration that had to happen to the algorithm, but there also had to be a reconfiguration to the player base at some point in the last format. Right. So it, it's not as clean, right? Where it's like, okay, this gets reported and then everyone is able to force it. And then it kind of just makes the the cues awful because you're just playing a bunch of gate decks, but right. it, it eventually gets fixed. Like it gets patched the next week or whatever. And once the devs figure out how to actually handle it, but you know, real life, you see those those changes happen a little more gradually over the course of a few weeks. All right. That is the extent of limited talk for this episode of the game podcast. It's more than you usually get people, so you should be happy with it. Uh, it's very rare that we go down those roads. I do think it's interesting to see how the game's evolving, though, and especially in that context. So, OK, let's let's make a decision right now. You have to submit your deck. ASAP. You're, the deadline's ticking. Somehow you've been granted a 15-minute extension. What do you want to do right now? What would you feel comfortable with? What percent of happiness do you have with your decision after you've made it? Saltai's always been in the back pocket. I do have this Grohl mid-range deck that I could submit. Realistically, I kind of just want to play out the Twitch Rivals tournament and see how that goes, even though I don't think that that deck is something that I would necessarily submit, but I didn't mm-hmm. want to just play stock Saltai because that's boring as hell. If people who are playing the Pro Tour watch the Twitch Rivals thing and like say I win the tournament and people are like, oh, that's his Pro Tour deck or whatever. Like, you know, who knows what kind of weird ripple effect that'll have on the Pro Tour. It'll be awesome. Sure. You could even redefine the meta overnight, which is kind of crazy. You just like played a deck on a whim and then people will be scrambling to play the deck after they see you win tomorrow. And then they'll listen to this on Thursday and be like, oh, actually, he's not that high in the deck. Yeah. Uh, So that'll be an interesting confluence of events. There's a few other oddball options, I guess, still floating around out there that could show up. You know, a friend of the podcast, Nick Prince, just won his RPTQ with his green white deck, which should be no surprise to anyone who knows Nick. He is a aficionado of the green white strategies, but there's decks like that out there. I've seen other strange stuff popping up via our, our arena deck list account, which grabs the best of arena deck lists. Of course, it seems like there's oddball options. Do you think there's any chance of a breakout deck that we aren't expecting showing up at this pro tour? Yeah, I think so. I think there are going to be enough people working on the format who haven't necessarily been, participating in the Twitch streams or in these live tournaments. And there, there are things like the Nexus of Gates deck where, you know, what, what happened to that thing? Like some people were high on it, yourself included, and it just kind of dropped off. And I'm kind of worried about Gatebreaker Ram. Honestly, it's like, that's, that's the one thing where it's like, if you play Saltai and you expect a field of Saltai, I mean, Gates is the deck that just crushes you and you have basically no hope. Yeah, Gatebreaker Ram, scary card and an option that Nexus of Gates can use out of the sideboard. Or there's just the straight up fair gate deck as well. That And when I say fair, I mean playing three mana 10 10s on like turn four or five, whatever kind of nonsense they get up to. So that's certainly looming in the back pocket. I wrote a little bit in my article about how I think those decks did a super poor job of adapting to mono blue. But if they just look to like curl harpooner and get some equity that way, they might find that matchup answered. So it could be they come out of retirement, a lot of oddball options. And I hope something exciting happens. I kind of have low expectations though. Unlike you, 
it just seems like it's too refined of a format, quite honestly. And the the good decks, the quote unquote good decks are too good and they hold up really well against any kind of nonsense. Like it's a Costa format. We'll, we'll phrase it that way. Matt Costa has become a superstar of this podcast over the last two weeks, but it seems Rightfully like a format so. that it seems like a format that isn't tolerating any nonsense. It just wants good, clean deck building, the most powerful options. And uh, that's what will ultimately hold the day is my prediction. Yeah. Nick's, RPTQ win is interesting because he was he was all set to play something else. And then I, I kind of just taunted him by showing him that Selesnya went 7-1 in one of the recent moxes or whatever. And like the list looked pretty good, honestly. And uh, he ended up playing it for better or for worse. I know that he, he played like six leagues beforehand and eventually got his invite. So that's great. But I, I do still feel kind of bad for just kind of like luring him away from the quote unquote good decks, even though he did. I, end up I'm sure there. he's not mad at you right now whatsoever. I, I'm sure he's willing to forgive you. Well, he could either be like, Oh, thank you for showing me this good Selesnya deck. He could also be like, ha ha told you. So Selesnya has been great. You should stop poo pooing on it. Right. Which is, which is possible. You know, that's, that's a fine take for him to have too. But like his, his road was like pretty rocky too, where he went four Oh Oh two. And then won his last round got in it at, at eighth. So right. it's like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure what exactly to think of that deck, especially since he mentioned that it this all-time matchup could be better. One other point from the RPTQs, as I looked around and saw the RPTQ winners share their successes via social media, I saw more mono red than I would have ever expected. <laughs> Do you have any explanation for mono red decks still finding success in the rptq format where they found virtually none for weeks and weeks leading up to it but i looked out there and here's all these light up the stage skewer the critics decks just running over people any chance that deck makes a resurgence at the pro tour i mean i guess one of the things that held it down was the esper decks which we're now saying have no good matchups left so people shouldn't be playing the esper decks i mean is this the next rabbit hole to go down where mono red is just like secretly awesome again and maybe it gets a little bigger it does a little bit of adjustment and gets rekindling phoenix into the deck and leverages a really well positioned card so while i would like nothing more than to play mono red in 80 percent of the pro tours i play in for you know the last three years or whatever i do think that there is some merit to it especially if you're talking about getting bigger but then you should just abandon the gitu lava runners and the fanatical firebrands and move towards reactives or or gruel yep yeah, one of the splash colors. I, I think you're right. I think it adds too much at this point. Mono red is particularly primed to beat up on nonsense. There can be elevated levels of nonsense at the RPTQ level, certainly more than I would expect at the Pro Tour. So maybe there's some of that effect happening. On the whole, though, I would expect mono red to have a smaller showing than its splashing Brethren, unlike Brethren, under unlike the mono white deck, which I expect to be much more highly represented than any kind of splash versions of mono white. Yeah, I agree. I think mono red aggro deck like Gitu Lava Runner is going to be 5% of the field, maybe. Maybe less. Okay. Interesting. I don't know, man. What What do you think I should do? You think I should just play Saltai? You want me to I, just give up? I think you should build a great version of Saltai, which is very different from just giving up. I would say that suits your skill set particularly well. And if you are comfortable in your drafting ability, I think you try and leverage a fine constructed record into a solid pro tour. The other option I would be quite pleased with with is if you found what you felt was the best mono blue deck. I still think that deck is fantastic. I think your skill uh, advantage would serve you very well there. 
And there are some tweaks to be made. There's sideboard adjustments. There's technology to, to be applied in the mono blue deck. And I just get the sense that it it may still be underprepared for it. Like, I don't think people are going to go the full four curl harpooners or, you know, whatever hate cards they're using. I think they're still trying to temper things and take this half measure approach. And I don't think that's going to be enough to actually deal with mono blue, a deck that can deny you access to the game. It doesn't matter what cards are in your deck if you don't get to cast any of them. And mono blue always has that option. So I would be perfectly fine with either of those choices. The Simic thing is one that I I think would be plausible if you had been working on it this whole time, but I think probably picking it up in the dark would be problematic right now. Yeah, like the Nexus deck is basically just all about velocity, and I've played with a bunch of different Nexus decks, just not a ton. Like I maybe play like three matches with each one or whatever, but mm. it's it's pretty easy to play. It, it does certainly oh, work with my I, skill set, but yeah, yeah, it's not, not like I doubt your ability to play the deck. I just think it's like the kind of sideboard modifications it's going to require are a little bit different than something like the sideboard modifications for something like mono blue, which is severely option limited or something like Golgari, which can basically do whatever it wants. And you can set up any game plan you want. I think Nexus might require a little bit more testing to find the right game plans in certain matchups. And the clock is just ticking at this point. I don't know if you're going to have the time to really put it all together. Look, man, I know that you don't need to make it worse. (laughs) I'm not trying to rub it in. I'm just trying, I'm trying to put you on the right course. I'm already stressed out. Already stressed out. I just amped it up even more. All right. Why don't we take a, a low stress question then so we can temper down your stress levels a little bit. Okay. Hit me. This one comes from Heezer. Of course, all these questions come from our lovely patrons over on the Game Podcast Discord. Heezer wants to know, and I'm just leaving this question for you. I, I don't even want to answer it. You are better suited to answer this, answer this than I am. It's going to be your question, your unwinding exercise for the day. Heezer wants to know, if you had to label members of the MPL as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who would be who and why? What do you got for me, Jerry? This this is awesome. Heezer is one of my childhood friends from a very long time ago. So thank oh, you for cool. this question, Heezer. I appreciate this. So there are 32 MPL players and only four Ninja Turtles. Right. And Master Splinter, but- if you want to get a little froggy with it. Ooh, I wasn't even thinking about Splinter. <laughs> oh man, then we can we can just you know start talking about like Shredder. Yeah, we could go real deep on this one. Who's who's Shredder? Is it Owen? All right, give me your core turtles, and then we can worry about who the ancillary characters are. Okay, I think there are two easy Michelangelos, and okay. it, it's Alexander Hain and Brian Bronduin. Great answers, both of them. I, I buy that entirely. I think BBD kind of epitomizes Michelangelo, like definitely outside the game. But like Alex is like mostly game based when he's playing. And I guess BBD is too, but you know. Right. I was I was going to quickly say that like BBD may strike me as a little too smart to be Michelangelo. But I, I don't mean that as like a slight to Hayne because I also know Hayne is incredibly smart. It's just his attitude. Like, again, this is always when they're not playing, not when they're actually in the game. They're both basically stone faced and completely focused when playing. But Hain is a little bit more easygoing, I think, outside of the game. Or maybe I just know Hain better than I know BBD, if we're being fair. Yeah, B- BBD is about the same. And also, like, all these people are geniuses, right? So Right, right. Really so fair. anyone who I've... Yeah, it, it's not really a, a depth comparison. I think Ken makes a good Michelangelo, too. Okay. He's just, like, ridiculous and over the top, you know? Like, he's he's definitely saying cowabunga. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not close. 
that's the test. If you can picture them saying Cowabunga, then they, you know they make a good Michelangelo. Yeah. Uh, so easy Leonardo is Reed Duke. How do you feel about that? Yeah, yeah, clearly. Slam dunk answer. Is there anyone else that even comes close? No one is springing to I, – I think Reed is such a clear Leonardo that everyone else is disqualified, basically. That's the problem is you can't even consider anyone else. That's legit. I think Paulo could maybe fall under that category too. Oh, maybe Carlos is a good Michelangelo. Damn it. <laughs> you found so many Michelangelos. All right, moving on. Uh, ooh, maybe Yui is a good Leo. All right, uh, Donatello, I found one slam dunk answer, and that is Canister. Love it. Perfect answer. Next. I, I don't even think that was close either. You've found very good answers thus far. <sighs> Raphael is kind of like badass and very confident, and I think that uh, both Marcio and Owen kind of fall under that. Okay. I think I think I had a harder time with this one because for me it's harder to pin down Raphael's personality. I think he's been portrayed a bunch of ways across different mediums, and yeah. I can't really put my finger on what makes a good Raphael. So I'm less enthusiastic about these Raphaels. But uh, if you can if you can show your work, I'll take the answer. Yeah, I don't know. Like I guess another thing that sort of described Raphael was like him being a loner, right? Which doesn't necessarily fit with a lot of the people on this list because they're all affiliated with teams and they play magic because of their wait, friends wait. and wait, 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 stuff, wait, but what if you're the Raphael and you just didn't no, look inwards I wasn't, and were able I wasn't to find gonna yourself? Name, I wasn't going to name myself. And, uh, you, you might be the Raphael. If you can't do it, I'll do it. I, I think you're actually the Raphael. All right, whatever. Uh, okay. <laughs> Splinter is Huey. Are you saying that just because he's among the oldest members of the MPL, Jerry? Well, so he is he's among the oldest, but I mean, he also is just like very wise and I think imparts a lot of knowledge to his younger brethren. So I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And I think, uh, you know, again, Huey's is not someone I know particularly well, but based on what I've seen, I would certainly see him as like the father figure of the PGO. Right. It seems like he has taken both of those guys under his wing, not to say that they both are an in entirely capable on their own but uh i i do see where you're going with the splinter comparison there yeah uh lee shi chan would also probably be a good splinter sure yeah a very prominent pillar of that community of the apac region for sure and then uh for for shredder do you think do you think it's just owen do you think like he's the end boss and that's that's kind of what it comes down to or i don't know if i want to give my answer for shredder Ooh, okay. it, it feels it feels bad to call someone out as Shredder. Let's just say this. I would have called out an organization for being Shredder, not an individual. So Ooh, fair. Okay. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Okay. Uh, I think the, I think these were spot on answers for the most part. Even if you didn't give the best Raphael answer, I got you there eventually. So which of the Ninja Turtles is your favorite going into the Pro Tour? Who do you like to take the whole thing down? Hmm. Well, considering the constraints of this format, I don't know. I think I think like Brad and BBD are just kind of like mid-range kings, right? And they're just going to crush right. it. Christian Hauk, like his his entire career, or at least like the last five years of his career, has just been like defined by mid-range decks too. So like he's he's almost certainly going to play Saltai. Jean Emmanuel basically plays whatever the best deck is. So I think you know Saltai is another good choice for him. So I don't know. I think like any of these players probably has a pretty reasonable shot. 
obviously among the best players on the planet. So I think that's always a safe bet. Let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a favor of this for this tournament. Not something I often do. I'm gonna go with the world champ. I like the world champ's odds to put another result on the board. Javier possibly uh, taking down another tournament is my prediction. That'd be rad. I'd be happy with that outcome. Absolutely. All right, man. Sign us out. That's game.